A disgraced former governor making it official. I have been so encouraged by the people of Missouri that I'm happy to announce tonight that I am running for the United States Senate. Also this week, the lessons learned from a massive vaccine expansion effort in Missouri and Kansas. We ask, what happens next? And a mask mandate's about to disappear. Plus, homicide's out of control, and so is a homeless problem. But is there a fix on the way? Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Borley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. I'm Nick Haynes, and thank you for joining us as we connect the dots on the most impactful stories of our week. Checking in with us from KCUR News, Lisa Rodriguez, and from KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo. Channel 9 Chief Political Reporter Michael Mahoney is with us, and the editor of The Call newspaper, Eric Wesson. It's official. Eric Greitens is back less than three years after resigning as governor amid sexual assault allegations. The Missouri Republican went on Fox News this week to announce he's running to succeed Roy Blunt in the U.S. Senate. The people of Missouri need a fighter in the United States Senate. They need somebody who's going to go, as I will, as I'm committed to do, to defending President Trump's America First policies and also to protecting the people of Missouri from Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer's radical leftist agenda. Yeah. So we're excited. You know, We've got a great grassroots team, and uh, we're in this race. And he's not the only one. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt appearing on a different Fox News program to say he's running, too. As Attorney General, I've spent my time defending President Trump and the America First agenda. Washington, D.C. needs more fighters, needs more reinforcements to save America. So after a lot of reflection, um, support from folks back home and on behalf of the people of the great state of Missouri, I'm announcing my candidacy for the United States Senate. All righty, Pete Mundo, let's start with uh, Eric Greitens, uh, because while some people may discount his candidacy, uh, we had, in just hours after that announcement, former New York City Mayor uh, Rudy Giuliani endorsing Greitens. Is President Trump next? Highly unlikely, uh, uh, Nick. I mean, what you're seeing here, though, by the Greitens team is a clear push to be the closest candidate to President Trump. The problem is if President Trump or former President Trump endorses somebody else uh, or stays out of it, it's going to be difficult to do. I, I find it unlikely with Josh Hawley, who has admitted to bending the president's ear on this race already, with Josh Hawley, who is no fan of Eric Greitens, uh, getting in the mix here and talking to former President Trump. They obviously have a rapport that President Trump would then go endorse a, a guy like Eric Greitens. That seems very unlikely to me. Uh, but what you're seeing is a stable of, of Trump confidants come out, Sebastian Gorka, Rudy Giuliani, and others, endorsing Greitens. And Greitens is hoping that, frankly, Trump stays out of it and that more people get into the race and that he can pull off a victory in a primary with what might be, you know, mid-30s percent of the vote. That's what Dave Helling said last week, Michael Mahoney. And he said, you know, the more candidates in this race, the better chance Eric Greitens has to win the Republican nomination. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Nick. And uh, Pete is right on the button on this as, as well. The only poll of any sort of uh, reliability on this is several months old. It's from uh, the Missouri Scout, and it had Roy Blunt at 42%, Eric Greitens at 32%. Now, in a three-way primary, 32% is a pretty good number. Right now, this is a two-person race with Eric uh, Schmidt getting into the race, the attorney general, earlier this week as well. The 
folks in the know in the Republican Party believe that this will not be a two-person race, that it may be three or maybe more than that. As I understand it, there's an effort underway now to have some sort of meeting of the minds to try to straighten it out so it is simply Schmidt versus Greitens. But in modern politics in America with an open Senate seat, that's going to be very unlikely. However, um, it remains to be seen. I think this is not going to be a two-person race. Lisa, it's interesting. A lot of people are having a hard time getting their arms around the fact uh, that Eric Greitens, he even has the audacity to get into this race in the first place. Let's just remember some of these accusations against him from his hairdresser who claimed uh, he blindfolded her, restrained her in his basement, sexually assaulted her after taking away her phone and her clothes. Has any politician recovered uh, from a fall from grace that big that, uh, and then came back to higher elected office again? The, the allegations against Greitens were explosive and really did uh, follow him, you know, for for many months. It was it was the biggest story in Missouri for so long. But anyone who's surprised that he that he has jumped into this race hasn't been paying attention. He's yeah. been hinting and and dropping clues that he was going to do this for at least the past year. Now, whether another politician has has survived a fall from grace, maybe my colleagues have more opinions about that. But I, I mean, even in recent memory, um, you know, even President Trump was plagued by allegations of sexual abuse um, throughout his candidacy and, and still remained very popular among his base throughout his presidency. Michael. Um, the radio sh uh, talk show host Hugh Hewitt, who is a conservative and an extensive uh, um, broadcast chain, he's got 120 sta uh, stations, did a very long and tough interview with Greitens and addressed these very questions earlier this week. And it basically comes down to this. Gre uh, uh, Greitens was asked, are you not so flawed, this by a conservative talk show host, aren't you so flawed that you could jeopardize this seat? Aren't you so flawed that you're going to be Todd Akins 2.0, the unsuccessful candidate against uh, Claire McCaskill in 2012 because of his clumsy uh, campaign? And uh, Hewitt went after him repeatedly on this. Greitens didn't really answer these questions. Uh, and Hewitt's line was, look, you have to know that in a primary, you're going to get attack ads against you and you have to be able to defend yourself. And what is your answer? And Hewitt was not satisfied with his answers. He went the same attack about Greitens' service in the military and whether or not he was actually deployed with a SEAL unit in the Mideast. Another fuzzy answer from Greitens uh, on this. This was the toughest interview that Eric Greitens has had to endure since he uh, resigned office. And uh, it was done by a conservative Republican uh, in the name of, I'm worried, says Hewitt, about keeping this seat and can you do it? And he wasn't impressed. Eric, there has to be a Democratic candidate to get into this race, too. Are there any major names that have now come forward? Last week, you were suggesting uh, former Governor Jay Nixon. He hasn't got into the race yet. Neither has right. uh, Quinton Lucas still. Right. Uh, you know, my pick would be the long shot of uh, former Mayor Sly James still. Uh, I think that Mayor uh, Lucas has some things that he still wants to do as mayor. He's got some agenda items that he'd like to go see through. So I don't see him getting into it. But Democrats are hurting for a candidate to get into that race. Okay. Michael? 
And the, the fact of the matter in the state of Missouri is no African-American has ever been elected to statewide office. And that would be a barrier. And Eric is right that the bench for uh, the Democrats is very thin. There's a couple of guys in this right now. Lucas Kuntz here from the, uh, our area. Scott Sifton, former state senator from um, the St. Louis area, is also making this race. I am told that Jay Nixon would like to do it. Whether or not he does is another matter. And it's going to be really tough for anybody to to get in and uh, any Democrat to get in, raise the money and, and do a statewide campaign where one of the main predicates is, well, I hope the Republicans nominate Greitens. That's a really, really inside draw to make. Last, yeah, we week, we, last week, we mentioned the fact that uh, Claire McCaskill had no interest in joining this race. Neither did the former Senate have any interest in being in elected office again, Pete Mundo. But if McCaskill doesn't see herself as an elected official, how about as an ambassador? The New York Times reports that McCaskill is on President Biden's shortlist for a plum overseas diplomatic post and the Hong Kong-based South China post has even named her as a likely pick to become ambassador to China. What puts her so high on the president's list and why China? Well, she's become a, a pretty prominent figure uh, on MSNBC. Um, but frankly, I mean, I, if you're Claire McCaskill and, you know, you're in the uh, twilight years, so to speak, and you've got a really cushy job and, and that's not knocking what we do for a living, but she's got a nice job there at MSNBC. I'm sure making a nice salary uh, being a talking head. I'm sure she partial, partially wishes she was doing this years ago. I, I don't see the benefit to Claire McCaskill. I mean, she doesn't appear to have the itch to get back into this uh the policy game or the political game, especially based on what she's doing right now. She's made that pretty clear on social media and elsewhere. So uh, her name comes up because she's still a prominent figure in the party and, and um, you know, partially here in the Midwest. But I don't, I don't see the pull for a Claire McCaskill doing something like this. Michael? Um, I've talked with somebody who is familiar with McCaskill's thinking very recently on this very subject, and it basically comes down to the fact that she is not interested. Pete's right on the button on, the, uh, on this thing, and that she is not at this time and probably will not pursue any sort of post inside of the Biden administration. Just to elaborate for one second, the idea of putting an American politician in the uh, embassy in uh, uh, China is an extremely bad idea. Given the nature of the delicate uh, uh, dance between China and the United States, they need a foreign service hand and a really good one in that job that not only can handle China, but also has to be a, a very aware of relations between China and Japan, China and Taiwan, China and the Koreas, China and Vietnam. And it's uh, the, whoever is the ambassador from the United States to China is probably the third most important diplomat in America for the foreseeable future behind the Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor. It's not a job for a politician. This week, Kansas swung open the vaccine floodgates to allow 600,000 more residents to get their shots. I'm so excited. It's a big relief. My sister's getting married, so I'm trying to make sure I'm vaccinated before the wedding. Lots of young people getting their shots. That's because for the first time, anyone in Kansas with a medical condition is eligible from cancer to diabetes, asthma to obesity. Also approved is anyone doing critical infrastructure work. That's a huge category that includes bank tellers to IT workers, communication employees, and anyone who works for a utility company. Missouri did something similar last week. So what were the lessons we learned from this big expansion? Did it cause 
systems to crash, Lisa Rodriguez. Thousands of non-eligible people signing up for shots they weren't entitled to. Seniors being elbowed out by the young and healthy. You know, it, it didn't. We didn't have systems crash. We saw this mass vaccination event at Arrowhead Stadium go relatively smoothly. There is some concern. There remains concern that, that seniors are not getting vaccinated quickly enough. I don't know that it's because they're being elbowed out by all of these people being eligible. I think it's probably more has to do with, with transportation, how to get to vaccination sites, a little bit of resistance among that population. But there are still many, many seniors that have not been and vaccinated as these other tiers continue to open up. What were your what was your perspective on that, Eric, about the lessons learned from this big expansion on both sides of state line? I think it was positive to the degree that a lot of people that were unable to log into systems to get vaccines uh, were able to get it. They went out to Arrowhead, went through that process down the street at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum with high V's. We had lines from the Negro Leagues baseball all the way in front of the call newspaper like 9.15 in the morning. So I think it's uh, expanding. And I know next week they're supposed to be at the zoo uh, in one of the parking lots. So I think the expansion of it is getting people that don't have computers, that don't have transportation, uh, in line to get the vaccine. And I saw at the zoo one, uh, even though it was supposed to be for Missouri residents, a lot of Kansas residents signed up, even though they're not eligible. They've been calling them to try and get them off the list. But you, do, you don't have to prove eligibility. And uh, the head of uh, health in Kansas, Michael Mahoney, says um, we are looking to rely on the, quote, spirit of fairness and honesty. Were people being fair and honest this week? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the big concern, both in Kansas and in Missouri, is they believe that there's 40% of the eligible population that will not get a shot. Now, a small part of that, I believe, and I'm being told, are the anti-vaxxers, probably less than 10%. The balance of that is the, uh, the group that they're really sort of trying to reach out to, seniors and others, who are hesitant they're not anti-vaxxers, but they're skeptics about this specific vaccine because they don't know anyone that has received it. And they don't know whether or not it's going to affect them and how it's going to affect them. And so there's going to be a campaign in both these states to go, look, your neighbor, your cousin, the, the, the people you go to church with, they have got it and everything's okay. And in Kansas, what they're going to do here very quickly is uh, also include private doctor's offices as part of the vaccination uh, process. Now, they're not going to uh, give lots of people shots at doctor's offices just because they don't have that many people going through. But that will be part of the campaign to address this hesitancy. If my doctor says it's okay, maybe I'll do it. But I was surprised, though, that Mike Parsons said oh, only 60% um, would get the vaccine, 40% would not, based on their studies, Pete. And he's saying that everybody, by the way, can be eligible by April 9th for this vaccine. If we have such a huge number who are not going to get that, what does that do for companies who are now wanting to have policies in place that say you have to be vaccinated to keep your job? Or, you know, the sports organizations or entertainment venues who are going to expect you to get vaccinated to go to those places, or even a museum, for that matter? 
Well, a couple things. Uh, first off, I think the uh, Michael's right from the standpoint that getting the personal doctors to push this is the way to do it. It's become <laughs> politicized where we've got politicians saying, go get your vaccine. We are in a hyper political uh, partisan world that doesn't do anything for anybody. Letting people talk to their own doctors about it is the best approach to have here. Now, to that point, in terms of the uh, businesses and corporations, that doesn't really address the, the, the makeup of the folks who are hesitant, which is the elderly people, more likely in rural parts of Missouri, like we've seen with oversupply there. So that group isn't as impacted by this anyway, which also is a barrier because if they're not having to go to a corporate job or a job for that matter, where it's going to be required, then they're also uh, not necessarily encouraged to go get it based on what their lifestyle is. So you've got multiple hurdles here that are going to take some time to get over. Ah, but they won't get a Krispy Kreme donut because that's only available for people with a vaccination card. They won't get a two-for-one burger at Westport Flea Market, Pete, which is only now available for people with vaccination cards. Won't these types of incentives, being able to see a game, a concert that you want to go to, your favorite museum, unless you have a card, push people who are vaccine-hesitant to get it? I mean, how many people from Holt County are coming down to the K every summer? I mean, do they do it once a year, maybe? Uh, Krispy Kreme, I mean, you know, can you fork up a buck for the donut? I don't know. I'm just saying, uh, you know, the incentives I don't believe are large enough for elderly folks in rural Missouri, based on what I've seen right now, to go out and do it. Eric. You know, and I think it's going to go even further than that. I believe we'll see within the next few months where airlines will do it. Airlines will require you to have vaccines in order to get on flights. So I, I look yeah. for that to expand. And most of us don't actually fly, so that might be an easier one. But we haven't got a full grasp on how much resistance there will be from parents about having their children vaccinated, in addition to requiring all school districts to open by the end of the month. Kansas lawmakers want to block schools from requiring the vaccination. Unless you have a religious or medical exemption, you have to have vaccinations to attend school in Kansas now. Why would this be different, Lisa? I think to, to Michael's point that he made earlier, this, you know, adding vaccines to, to the list to enter schools has always been something that's fallen to the, the head of the health department, the statewide health department in Kansas. And it's not necessarily a a pushback on vaccines in general, it's a specific pushback to this vaccine. And, and, the, and the state health department argues this has always with it, been within our rights. We can do this. But there are, there are lawmakers in Kansas, often the same ones that have pushed against mask mandates, um, that, are, that are pushing these bills right now that don't want to hand that responsibility over to Lee Norman, head of that, that department. You mentioned the mask mandates. I see St. Joseph in Missouri now removing its mask mandate this week. Sedgwick County, home of the city of Wichita. Uh, Michael Mahoney removing its mask mandate uh, this week. Will we see other local cities and counties right here in our metro say, we're going to get rid of that too? this week or next week? Yeah, I think that will happen. Uh, I think it won't happen quickly because in general, in general, um, it, uh, governments around here take their cue up from Kansas City, Missouri. And that happened when the shutdown started and the mask mandates went into place. And when they, uh, when they were relaxed, it also relaxed uh, around the metropolitan area. And so um, Kansas City, Missouri's uh, requirements that are stricter than most anyway uh, will probably be the lead on this. But you'll, you'll see this relax. You're seeing it right now already. Uh, and you, you can go to various entertainment districts, various restaurants right now, and you can see a lot of people that uh, don't, uh, do not wear a mask or don't have a mask on at all. 
Last week, Kansas City shuttered its temporary warming center for the homeless at Bartle Hall. So what happens to the homeless now? If you've been to Westport in the last few days, you can see for yourself a large homeless encampment has now sprung up across from the entertainment district. Another encampment has now been erected outside of City Hall downtown. While there have been scores of complaints, the mayor and city council say they have no plans to tear down the makeshift villages of tents and tarp coverings. So what, Lisa, is the City Hall's solution to this? Well, I think the, the jury's out on that. I will say the, the budget that the council is uh, uh, approving this week um, does allocate some federal funding for um, solutions to um, this, you know, the people experiencing homelessness and tenants advocates. But uh, we've yet to see a, a tangible specific plan despite the existence of a homeless task force created by Mayor Lucas uh, several months ago. $195 million, Eric Wesson, is coming into the, this, um, the city because of the federal tax windfall coming in or the stimulus windfall. Um, the advocates for the homeless say, why aren't we spending that money then uh, to, to fix this problem? Uh, so why not? Well, uh, the money's going to come in two payments. They'll get one payment this year. They'll get one payment next year. I think most of the money has been earmarked, but there is some money that he's going to be trying to put in a affordable housing and maybe some other plans that they have. But I, I was in, went down uh, in front of City Hall because you got the tents set up at City Hall. Uh, earlier they had given them like two hours to clear the area and somebody rethought that and came back and said that they would give them a 48 hour notice. But I don't believe there is a viable plan in place for the houseless, they call themselves houseless people now. I don't know what you do, whether you open up a school, renovate it, uh, and talking to some of the people there, it's like they want the city to give them houses out of land bank, fix them up, but my question is, how will they maintain them if they're not able to maintain them? Utility bills, uh, other things that it takes as far as home ownership. But to your question, I don't know how much this council will put in the budget to, for the homeless and homeless situations. Won't the city want to spend some of that money, by the way, on trying to solve another problem, and that's crime. The number of homicides in Kansas City is running higher than last year's record-breaking uh, murder total. Is there any fix for that that you see, Pete Mundo? Uh, to me, Nick, this is all trickle down. This all weaves together. Um, you know, think about where we were last year. We had about 100 homeless camps last year. The numbers I saw in the Kansas City Star had us up to about 170 homicides. Uh, that is obviously through the roof, a record last year. They're up again this year. These things all weave together. Um, and, and yes, it's kind of been a perfect storm with COVID, the economy, you know, the social justice aspects of all this as well. Uh, but to me, the sooner you get things going again, and you can point fingers wherever you want for that, but it's going to be a, a rising tide. When you get the kids back in school, when you get people back to work, you open up employment opportunities. It doesn't solve all of this. I mean, these were issues pre-COVID. They'll remain issues, but you can start to make a dent in it, and uh, that's where all this stuff really does work together into the same problem. And the police chief says this week, uh, Lisa Rodriguez, that the uh, homicide rate is up all across the country in large cities. Uh, even on the homeless situation, you see stories, altercations happening from Denver to Minneapolis to Seattle. This is also becoming a city, uh, you know, a countrywide issue in big cities. I think I think that is exactly true. I think violent crime and and the issue of of homelessness are are going to be 
the major issues of for, for the city for the next year. And I will say these these encampments in front of City Hall and right in the middle of Westport, almost as a form of, of protest, really have brought this issue directly in front of us in really high traffic areas, literally on the front lawn of City Hall. And I think that paired with the still the the energy from activists on police reform we are we're getting close to a year since the protests following the killing of george floyd i think that at least in kansas city and probably across the country that these two issues will will remain front and center michael yeah the the, the way out of um the crime problem either in kansas city new york city wherever is not always just more cops. It is, uh, as Pete was saying, it's an improved economy because that th there's a lot of issues uh, involved in, in poverty and uh, in fear that are driving driving the crime uh, the crime rate. What's going to be really interesting to watch is the results from the trial in Minnesota uh, uh, on the uh, on the case that sparked all of this back in in May. If that officer is acquitted, and I suspect he will be, because it's very difficult to convict a police officer uh, when he's doing something in his line of duty, we may see um, uh, more uh, things in the streets. And it's going to be harder, though, for police to control that. I saw the new policies in place, Eric, this week, that the police department is now going to take a, a more um, looser role in actually policing protests in Kansas City. Yeah, no uh, fire and tear gas in the crowds, no rubber bullets. Uh, pretty much they just have to just stand by and protect the buildings. But I did want to kind of back up and something that you said, the chief said this week that violent crime is up across the nation, 25%. I don't know what that has to do with Kansas City. What has he done in Kansas City to implement uh, letting people feel safer? One of the things that I saw that Deputy Chief Oakman had said was that they targeted being visible outside because they noticed a trend where people getting shot and killed outside, but it's still happening. So what did you implement to change that where it's still happening? You know, if you look at the news, you still have a lot of people getting found dead, shot in the street and shot in their cars. Two years ago this week, we were watching our local elected leaders don hard hats and pick up shiny shovels for the groundbreaking of the new $1.5 billion single <coughs> terminal at KCI Airport. Remember that? Well, it is the largest construction project now underway in our region. Has the pandemic forced the city and its development team to rethink the scope and size of this project, Lisa? Not, I haven't seen any indications. I mean, the the people who are running this project, people at Edgemore, the developer who's running this, says things are on time, on schedule. Construction has been moving on pace. If you've if you've been around the airport anytime lately, you see the building has come up from the ground. And despite the slowdown in in air travel, I have not seen any indications that they're reducing gates or taking or changing the design in any way. March third, twenty twenty three, is the date the city set for this to open. A grand opening for that. Is there any suggestion that will change, Michael? Not right now. I mean. Um... 
uh, you could, uh, there would be a myriad of, uh, of, of things that could happen that would de delay that. But this is linked up with uh, the city hosting the NFL draft, and they are going to move heaven and earth to, to hit that. The larger question, and the one that Lisa just touched on in a second, is did they build an airport in Kansas City for 2019 and will run it for 2023 when the dynamics of business travel have been altered substantially? And that's a question that remains to be seen. But clearly, there, there doesn't seem to be right now uh, an absolute universal uh, commitment to resume business travel, and that's the nut of the airlines business, the way it was before the pandemic. When you put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every story grabbing the headlines. What was the big local story we missed? March madness or March sadness? Every local team exiting early. Not so for the women. Missouri State heading to the Sweet 16. They take on Stanford on Sunday. The Royals signing the largest contract in team history. Salvador Perez snagging an $82 million deal. Another big Kansas City company being gobbled up. Canadian Pacific buying Kansas City Southern in a $25 billion deal. It'll create the first rail network connecting the United States, Mexico, and Canada. Overland Park Police reminding drivers that traffic laws still apply after a woman was clocked going 149 miles an hour on I-435. She was slapped with a $900 fine. And remembering Alvin Sykes, the self-taught legal scholar and Kansas City civil rights advocate who helped reopen some of America's most notorious cold case hate crimes. He was 64. Pete Mundo, was it one of those stories or something completely different? Something completely different, Nick. Uh, in the Senate down in Jeff City this week, uh, local state Senator Tony Luchtemeyer sponsored a bill that got through the Senate, now in the House, around uh, allowing Kansas City police officers to live outside of city limits. Mayor Lucas has been very vocal against that. It is, I believe, likely to end up on Governor Parson's desk. This is already the case in St. Louis. It now could be coming here to Kansas City. And, um, you know, it will certainly be hotly discussed, debated, talked about, and uh, will get a lot, a lot of criticism as well. So we'll keep a close eye on that. Does it do anything to reduce crime and homicides in Kansas City? Uh, not clear at this point, but will it help recruitment? That's what the proponents of it say, that it will allow more people to apply. It will encourage more people to apply, and that will help them with their numbers uh, moving forward and getting better candidates. Lisa Rodriguez. Um, I, I think that Pete's, Pete's suggestion is, is also is a hugely important story, but I have to throw my support behind remembering Alvin Sykes, civil rights icon. I think it's, it's absolutely impossible to understate the, the impact he had in drawing attention to the Emmett Till case in being able to reopen and reinvestigate those cases. And so that's, that's where my vote is. Eric Wesson. I agree with both of the two previous statements, uh, especially with the police not living in Kansas City. Uh, the connection uh, that if you're going to the grocery store and you see somebody that you know and how, if you pull them over, your interaction with them will be different. And, of course, Alvin Sykes' untimely death, great guy, uh, self-proclaimed uh, legal expert in helping bring Emmett Till's case to the forefront. He'll be greatly missed. Michael Mahoney. 
I'm just going to echo, it was a privilege to know Sykes. It just it absolutely was. This is not a big story, but I, but one that caught our eye at Channel 9 was the uh, you, the gas bills for the city from the coal snap. They got a $2.4 million bill, not for KCI, as we first told, but just for the overhaul base. And they got a $1.2 million bill for the water department. Normally, that overall base bill is about 80000 a month. The water department bill, about 48000 a, a month. And there were, and they're trying to negotiate those down and get them, uh, uh, get them adjusted, which is happening to, to some degree. But it's just a reminder to everybody that uh, you know a lot, we're going to be seeing some higher gas bills, heating bills because uh, because of the coal snap, and we're going to see them for a while. They might have to cut down two toilet cubicles at the new KCI terminal, plus a snack shop as a result of those extra bills. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed. Thank you, Michael Mahoney from KNBC 9 News and Lisa Rodriguez from KCUR. From the Cole, Eric Wesson, and 6 to 10 weekdays on KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo. And I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Keep calm and carry on.